seven of us, we decided, let's kick somebody in the butt while they're going to the bathroom. Why we chose to do this, you ask? Well, it's because we were 13-year-old boys. And 13-year-old boys are immature and mean and weird and insecure. And I don't know if you knew this, they bathe very rarely. We just said, let's kick somebody in the butt. Just know that's what 13-year-old boys do. So do 16-year-old boys and 26-year-old boys and 36-year-old boys and 76-year-old boys and 106-year-old boys. We do weird things like kick people in the butt while they go to the bathroom. And we decided to kick Jason Tony, who was trying to go to one of the urinals on the wall to kick him in his butt. And so while he was trying to pee, me and my six or seven friends repeatedly kicked him in his butt. And he turned when he was done, he finished, he was turning, very angry, and he looked at us, and I'm pretty sure that he looked down the line of seven of us, and he's like, which one of these guys can I beat up? Because I can't fight all seven of them. And his eyes landed on me, because I was the chubby kid that didn't look like he could beat anybody up. And that's okay, I've come to grips with that in my life. Uh, I've shared this with our students at Relevance uh, on Wednesday nights. This body was made for love, not war. But if you push me and you come at me, you're going to meet my good friends, Alfonso Ribeiro and Mr. Ricky Schroeder right here. And we're going to dance. And the boys gathered around and they did their war cry. That happens when two 13-year-old boys are about to fight. They went, fight, 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 fight. And, and, and when this happens, if you're ever like, I wonder how do I, I get my, my, my teenage sons to like come to the house and do chores or clean up, just go, fight, fight. Fight, fight. They'll show up, including boys that aren't even in your family. They'll be like, oh, there's a fight? Fight, fight, fight. That's what you do when you're 13. Fight, fight. And and people start gathering around. And guys who weren't even in our class or grade, they started tumbling into the bathroom. And all of a sudden, boys from like other schools started appearing. They're like, fight, fight. It's like Star Wars. They're just beaming into the bathroom there on the sixth grade hallway. Fight, 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 fight. And that's what they did. And, and, And Jason and I circle around. And I don't remember if, if, if much happened. I know we pushed and shoved. I think a few fists were thrown. And poor Miss Scribola, our PE teacher, had to barge into the boys' bathroom and separate the two of us because it was pretty clear what was going on in the boys' bathroom. Fight, 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 fight. I guess it's because 13-year-old boys forget that the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. But here we are chanting, fight, fight. It's what we do. And people are drawn to that. They want to see when a fight's going to happen. People just start coming around. I'm going to watch this. It doesn't matter if it's 13-year-old boys or if it's some ridiculous reality show on the History Channel, which, by the way, has nothing to do with history and has everything to do with jacked-up crazy people. But we come around that. We want to see this. Ooh, I wonder what's going to happen next. Let me, let me watch this. People are drawn to that. And all eyes go upon that person whose back is to the wall and the pressure is on and there is a fight at hand. People want to watch and see how they respond. They want to look at you. What are you going to do when your back is to the wall and the pressure is on? We spent the last couple of weeks learning about Nehemiah and we're using the book of Nehemiah to to see how we can lead our homes and lead our marriages and lead our families and lead our own lives. How we connect in a world that sometimes doesn't work out the way we think it's going to. When the ideal comes crashing down, those white picket fences fall down, what the heck do we do next? And Nehemiah, we met him in chapter one in Susa, which was the capital of the kingdom of Persia. 
And his people had been exiled into Persia by another kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom. And the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And now the Persians had Nehemiah. And at some point they said to the Jews, Nehemiah's people, you can go on back home. You can go back to Jerusalem. But Nehemiah chose to stay and work in the employment of the king. And we meet him in chapter 1 doing this and just kind of living this different life, but just it was what it was. And then one day some members of his family, some friends and family and relatives show up. And he says, how are things in Jerusalem? You all have been back for a while now. How's everything going? And they said, it's not good. The walls of our city are still down, which meant security and safety was an issue. People were raiding into town. It meant that they couldn't have their way of life. It meant that they couldn't have, they, they couldn't have religion the way that they knew religion. And this hurt Nehemiah. And we saw in chapter 1 that he wept over this. And then he decided to do two things. He prayed about it, and he acted upon it. And he said, I am to go back. I am to go help my people. And last week, we caught up with him in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Nehemiah uh, went to his boss, to the king, and he said, I need time off. i got to go home. And the king, who was the most powerful man in the world that time, could have ended Nehemiah. He could have seen it as uh, as an insurrection, or he could have just said no. But he said yes. And so Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, and for three days he tours the city. He sees the walls and sets in in motion a plan to rebuild these walls, to rebuild this city, to help rebuild his people. And last week we left off where he gathered together all of the leaders, the religious leaders and the civic leaders and the tribal and clan leaders. He brought all the the leaders from the nation of, of Israel around him, and he said, we must rebuild these walls. And they said, yes, let's rebuild these walls. And none of this had been easy, and none of it had been simple, but things had kind of clicked along at a pretty good pace. Nehemiah felt his call, and a few months later, he went to the king. The king let him go. He went back to Jerusalem. He toured the city, and then he went to the leaders and said, this is what we got to do. And and, and it it all kind of moved along at a pretty normal pace. But that's not always how life is. In fact, more often than not, life is hard, and it's difficult, and there's struggles, And we're going to see today what happens when Nehemiah and the people are pushed, their backs to the wall, and struggles come, and life gets hard, and warnings are made upon them and their lives and their lifestyles and their families. Struggle and opposition comes to Nehemiah, and we're going to see that Nehemiah and the people have a question, have a a decision ahead of them. Are we going to flee, or are we going to fight? Because all the eyes are locked on them. All the eyes of that region are locked on them. And our eyes are locked on them. What are they going to do? Because people are drawn to fights. They're drawn to, what are they going to do? How are they going to respond to this? What's going to come next? What do we do? Who we are and how we respond when life gets difficult is watched. How we fight life is watched by people. So that catches us up. So I want us to go to the, to the book of Nehemiah, to chapter 3. It's the 16th book in the Old Testament, the third chapter in the 16th book. Um, you can go there on your smartphone if you want to go to Version. We have our notes up on there, and you can look at that. You can go to your old school paper Bible if you have that. You can go to note cards, flashcards, or we'll put it up on screen. We're going to show it to you one way or the other, all right? But we're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 3, and I want you guys to look down at verse 1. Um, and we see here that, that it's time for them to get to work. It's time for them to, to, they've got their plan, they've got their vision, and let's actually put it to work. We'll see what they do. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let me read it for us. It says, Then Elishib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. And then they consecrated it and set its doors. And they consecrated it as far as the tower of a hundred 
and the Tower of Hanael. So we see here Elishib, who we've not met yet, but he is the high priest, and his brothers, the priests, because all of the priests in that time came from one family, from one tribe, and they come together and they do two things. I bet you can't guess what they do. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, what do they do? They pray and they act. Imagine that. It says that they consecrated it. Consecrated is a big old word to make pastors sound really smart and important. And it literally means pray. They prayed over the gate. They prayed over the wall. And they prayed that it would stand. It would give them protection. And then it says that they acted. They set its doors into place. They set the doors of the sheep gate. And the sheep gate is a really creative name for the gates in the wall where they Bring the sheep in. Okay, maybe the Jews weren't that creative, all right? But the sheep came in from there. And the reason that this is significant is the priests were by the sheep gate because it was the sheep that they drew their sacrifices out of. And they would look to the sheep. So what we're seeing here is not just the walls going up, not just the gates going up, but a return to their lifestyle, to their religion, how they do things. But the other important thing that we see here is that the priests and the people pray and act. Just like Nehemiah did in chapter 2. He prayed and he acted. Just like Nehemiah did in chapter 1. They pray and then they act. Nehemiah had set this standard. This is what I'm going to do when life's hard. This is what I'm going to do when difficulty comes. This is what I'm going to do when the walls come down. I'm going to pray and I'm going to act. And we see in chapter 3 that the people start to do it too. Because all eyes are on you when life gets hard. How are you going to respond? What are you going to do when it gets difficult? And we see that they're watching him and they're doing what he does. They pray and then they act. Moms and dads, the eyes of your children are on you. You don't think it is as much maybe because they're teenagers now. They're watching how you respond when life gets hard. Your neighbors are watching you. Your coworkers are watching you. Your family members are watching you. Strangers are watching you. They want to see that, yeah, you come to church, but how do you live Sunday afternoon and Sunday night and Monday and Tuesday? How do you live when you get that bad news? When things happen and struggles come in your life, people are watching your family, your home, they're watching you. Your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, they're watching you. And they're going to see, do they really pray and act? Do they truly live in obedience? We see it happening here because Nehemiah lived this out. This is what he did naturally. He prayed and he acted. And we see all in chapter 3. We won't read it, but if you want to read it on your own, it is a, it is a list of lists, after, after, clan after clan, tribe after tribe, family after family, putting the work of rebuilding the wall into action. We see them working in unison, having effort, and they're finally grasping the vision that Nehemiah had laid forth. It's not words anymore. They're actually putting it to, to deed here. Let's build this wall. Let's do this. Let's restore our lifestyle. Let's restore our city. Let's restore our capital. Let's restore our nation. Let's restore our religion. And there's points in here where it says that they're building or they're rebuilding. It's not error. Some of the places of the walls needed to be built from the ground up. It was gone. It had been decimated. Other areas, there were gaps and breaches, and it was, it was broken, and they needed to go and repair it. But each family did the work. The entire nation began to work together. The people of God, the nation of Israel, were rebuilding that wall, and they were clicking along. And then in chapter 4, we see some opposition. We actually met these two uh, opponents, Sanballat and Tobiah, in chapter 2. When Nehemiah came to town, they jeered him. They, they, they questioned him. They, 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 they made fun of him. 
And they show up again in chapter 4. Flip over to chapter 4 with me. Look in your Bibles or look up on the screen. In chapter 4, we see what happens when Sanballat and Tobiah show up. Let me read verse 1 for us in chapter 4. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Sanballat was most likely an administrator of the country. He was a mid-level bureaucrat who was charged with kind of making sure that these people didn't rise up against the kingdom. He had a payroll that was sent down from the kingdom of Persia. He probably was getting money from other people as well who were benefiting from a weakened Jerusalem and a weakened Jewish people who could raid in and and take what they wanted and steal what they wanted and probably pay a little bit back to him. They they were, were, um, Sanballat was was benefiting from that. And he's angry here, not that the walls are going up, he's angry here because his lifestyle is about to end. His money train is about to to leave the station. And in verse 2 he says, in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria... He's got people around him who are also against the Jews. He says he has an army. We don't know if it's a true army or if it was kind of just a group of thugs, a gang, some, some, some militant uh, friends that he kind of gathered around. But nevertheless, he's got people around him who don't want the Jews to rebuild the walls either. And they rise up in opposition. Then we meet Tobiah who says the same things and he starts hurling insults. And every day they're looking at these people build the walls. Every day they're seeing them try to restore their home. And they're yelling things out of slanderous things, ugly things, hurtful things. They're saying this out loud to them. And look at what Sanballat says in verse 2. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? He starts asking, will they do this? Will they do this? Can they do this? This is life. Because all of us, whether you've had it happen or not, at some point you're going to have a will you moment. Will you respond this way? Will you survive? Will you handle this the right way? Will you be able to make it through this difficult season? Will your marriage make it? Will your lifestyle make it? Will your conviction make it? Will your faith make it? Will you, will you, will you? And if you haven't had a will you moment, I promise you will. It's going to come because life is hard. The ideal crashes down. The picket fences, the walls come crashing down. And we're left with people going, will you make it? Will you be able to survive? Thank goodness for chapter threes, when the work is clicking along and things are getting done and everybody's together. But life isn't chapter three. Most of the time, life is chapter four, when opposition rises up against us and they question us and they make fun of us and they slander us and they challenge us. And then they look at you and say, will you handle this fight? Will you handle this opposition? Will you handle this struggle? Our life is not defined in chapter 3. Our life is defined in chapter 4. Our life is not defined when things are going well and easy. Our life is defined who we are as people, as children of God, as parents, as husbands, as wives, as spouses, as family members, as Christians, is defined in the will you moments. Will you make it through this? What will you do? And Nehemiah is defined by this as well. So when they look at Nehemiah, will you be able to lead and will you be able to restore it? Let's look at what he does. I bet you can't guess what he does. In verse 4, Nehemiah says this, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them 
up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. What does Nehemiah do? He prays. What a shocker. He prays. And I love how Nehemiah prays because he prays big. Last week he asked for time off and lumber and safe passage and a new boat and a couple jet skis and a house on the hills. Today he's like, hey God, jack these people up. They're making fun of us. Hurt them. Don't just hurt them. Hurt them good, God. I love how he prays. He prays big and he says, God, help us. Protect us. Let us go forward because we must rebuild the walls. So he prays. What else does he do? Let's look in verse 6. I bet you can't guess. He says, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. He prays and he acts. If you're here week one, that's the two points. If you're here last week, that's the two points. If you're here today, that's your two points. Pray, act. I'll give you a sneak peek next week. Pray, act. And it says the people had a mind to work because Nehemiah was leading them. Nehemiah was leading the way and they said, let's do this. We want safety. We want security. They had a mind to work and they built the wall to half its height. Wasn't all the way there, but they had made a good start and they were moving along. So life's going to be good, right? It's not how life works. Opposition, struggle, pain, hurt, it's going to come again. I'm sorry, it's just the way that it goes. I wish I had sunshine and roses and daisies for you today. Guys, I'm sorry I don't have that. I have realistic view of life. It is hard sometimes. And in verse 7, it shows what Sanballat and Tobiah do. It says, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And in verse 8 it says, and they plotted all together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. So it's not just words anymore. They're tucking shivs in their robes. They're going to shank somebody. they go prison yard on them here. They're going to hurt people. They are saying, we're not just going to make fun of you. We're going to hurt you. We're going to cause confusion. This life is hard. Frustration, struggle, pain, loss. It's coming because life is hard. Let's look what Nehemiah does. I wonder, I wonder. In verse 9, it says, and we pray to our God. It gets hard again and they pray again. And then it says, and we set a guard as protection against them. Day and night, he prays and he acts again. They pray and they act again. The fight is coming and they keep going back to that same place. I love people that go, oh, Nehemiah is such a great book on leadership. No, it's not. Nehemiah is a good book on praying and acting in faith. Nehemiah wasn't a skilled laborer. He wasn't a contractor. He wasn't a builder. It doesn't even say that he did much work here. The work he did is he prayed and he acted. That's what we do. God doesn't need leaders. He needs children of God who trust him and pray to him and act in faith on his leadership. He is the leader and we follow. And that's what Nehemiah does for the people. And they do it too. They pray and they act along with him. But the will yous keep coming because that's how life works. The will yous will come. Will you really be able to see this through? Will you really be able to finish the task? And they're left kind of going, well, we've got half a wall. Maybe. We see in verse 10 what happens to the people of God. Look with me in verse 10, chapter 4. It says, And Judah 
it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. And by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So the strength starts to fail. They get tired. Because life is hard. And doing work is hard. And doing work in our home is hard. For you new dads out here, I hope you've gotten that, that picture where you're laying on the couch asleep and you've got a tiny little baby on your chest. That's your welcome to the club. The next gift you get from the, the brotherhood of dads is real life, and it's hard. Because that baby starts walking, and it wants stuff. And then it keeps running, and then it tries to kill itself with that stuff. One-year-old birthday parties, it's not a celebration for the baby. It's a celebration for parents that the kid lived a whole year because all they want to do is kill themselves. Here's a TV. I want to pull it on top of me. Here's a knife. I'm going to try and stab myself. Oh, I can't stab myself. I'm going to jab it in a socket. Here's steps. I don't know what to do with them. I'm just going to go ahead and try and tumble down. That's all kids try to do. They want to die. And you keep them alive. So celebrate on that first birthday. They're alive. So enjoy that picture, Dad. We're like, oh, I've got the baby here. Because when you have another one, and you will, because you're a knucklehead sucker, you're going to be holding that baby trying to sleep, and there's going to be another one right in your face. Shooting you with a Nerf gun. And if you're a real moron like me, you have a third. So I got this one and this one. I got this one punching me in the crotch. It's what they do. And if you think this is an 18 to 21 year commitment, it's not. Because that baby becomes a toddler who wants something. And that toddler becomes a kid who wants something. And that kid becomes a teenager who wants something. And that teenager becomes an older teenager who wants something like college, which is really expensive. And then they want to get married and they want a wedding. And then they start to have kids and they want to bring the kids to you. And there's going to be a picture of you as gray haired grandma or grandpa with a kid on your chest on there. And you're like, what is going on here? It's not serene like the first one. You're like, where did this kid kid come from you don't ever retire from being a parent and i'm not saying that that's bad news i'm saying that's wonderful news because god in his grace looks at you and says i believe in you and i think you can lead your home and i want to make you the steward of a life and that job goes on until god calls them or you preferably you home so you can finally rest and then when we go there we crawl up on jesus's chest and he holds us it's gonna be all right i got you now This is a lifestyle commitment. It is a life of parenting, a life of support. And the job changes and shifts and the job description becomes different in time, but you will always be a parent and praise God for that. But it's tiring. And there's many days when there's too much rubble and the work is too hard. And as a dad, I'll be honest, I want to give up. As a husband, I want to give up. As a son, as a brother, as a nephew, as a grandchild, I want to give up. It is hard. So I get the Jewish people here saying, no, I don't know about this one. And then in verse 11, it says, And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. We see not only is their strength failing, but the enemy is circling. And we fight an enemy who wants to destroy us. They have no mercy. They don't fight fair. The enemy wants to destroy your home. Because when your home is destroyed, the enemy can continue to sweep into our country, into our schools, into our city, into our fens, into our families, into our cohorts. It can sweep through us. You are that line of defense. And the enemy wants to destroy you. They have no mercy on you. Scripture tells us that we don't fight with flesh and blood. Fight with spirits 
who are out to destroy you. And they're shrewd and they're cunning. And they'll do it in all kinds of ways. They can't attack the dad, they'll attack the mom. If they can't attack the mom, they'll attack the dad. They can't attack the parents, they'll attack the kids. They'll attack the relatives, they'll attack the neighbors, they'll attack your job. The enemy is out to destroy you because it wants no protection in your home, in your life, in your community. It wants to destroy you. So the enemy circles. And then it says in verse 12, and at that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions. And they said to them ten ten times, you must return to us. See, there were people working in Jerusalem who weren't from Jerusalem. They were just Jews who went back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. And their family showed up and said, not once, not twice, ten stinking times. Are you sure? Will you be able to do this? Sometimes the will yous don't come from our enemies or even from ourselves. It comes from our family. When a mother-in-law and father-in-law who raised perfect children say to you, will you really be able to do this? Will you be able to survive if you move away? Sometimes it's our family that questions us and questions our, our resolve and our faith and our strength. Will you? And us. Will you from our enemies? Will you from our families? They'll come to us all day, every day, attacking us. And life can hit us. And punch us and kick us and scratch us and scrape us. Life gets hard and it gets difficult. And they begin to come around us and it's haymakers and kidney shots and jabs to the face. Life gets tough and all of a sudden we're like, hold on, this isn't what I signed up for. Where's the man who who had a picnic for me and he he proposed to me there? Where's the the beautiful bride who came down the aisle dressed in white? Now she's in a a ratty t-shirt and sweatpants. Uh, uh, Where where are the kids like the TV shows who tell us all the things that are going on in our lives and and, and, and asking us for help? And they're just kind of hiding from me now and they don't tell me anything. Where's the ideal? The ideal is not real. You know what's real? Real. Life is hard. It's difficult. It's a struggle. And very often it's going to come and it's going to hit us and punch us. And the Jews could have said, you know, we've got half a wall. Let's walk away. And many of us here today are just hanging on. Barely in our minds and our hearts and our marriages and our lives and our homes. We're barely hanging on. We're like, haven't we done enough? We graduated our kids. We have two and you you really think, God, we're supposed to have three? We're just barely hanging on. We've got half a wall. We're given this choice, flee or fight. The Jews were given this choice, flee or fight. What do we do? My second day of college, Carson Newman, over on the east side of the state, I met a beautiful young woman from Chattanooga, Tennessee, named Becky Pittman. It was immediately taken by how beautiful she was, how funny she was, how easygoing she was. Her dad was a pastor. I was just very drawn, I was smitten by her. And because I'm a courageous man, 11 months later, I asked her out on a date. Don't judge, haters, don't judge. She's a good-looking lady, I'm not. Lady or good-looking. We began a courtship that turned into a relationship. And two years after we met, that second day at college, I asked her to be my wife. And six months after that, she became my wife. And on our horizon was all the ideal. We're going to go to seminary, we're going to get into ministry, we're going to have kids We're doing things like shopping together, leaving messages, funny, silly messages on our answering machine, and we're having movie nights and game nights with our friends. It's so perfect and easy. The one thing that I never shared with my wife when we were friends, when we were courting, when we were engaged, when we got married, is that I, for my entire adult life, 
was hopelessly addicted to lust, specifically pornography. I was completely addicted to it. See, I'm a child, I'm a survivor of sexual abuse from a family member. And that jacked me up a whole lot. But it wasn't just that. I'm a selfish person who wants to do things that I want to do and I don't care what the consequences are. And because I'm selfish, I became more and more addicted to my drug of choice, lust. And on top of that, to make the stew just right, I'm terribly fearful and insecure. And so my coping mechanism from from the time I was eight or nine, my coping mechanism was lust. And I did this when I felt fearful or stressed or insecure. And by the time I was 12, 13, it becomes such a part of who I was that even if I wasn't stressed or fearful or worried or insecure, I would act out on my addiction because that just became how I dealt with every single day. I grew up in a home that did not have a lot of pornography. So I found it as I could, and then we were in the dawn of the cable TV era, and there were new shows and sights and visions and things I had never seen before, and I feasted on it. And my mind would binge on it and would hold it in there. Even if I wasn't seen, I had it. By the time I entered middle school and high school, I was doing this all the time. I was binging on my addiction all the time. And when you're an addict, you live in a cycle. You binge on your drug of choice, mind, lust, and then you go through the acting out, and then you become shameful and guilt-ridden. And I would hit that point. And because I was fearful and insecure, I couldn't say these things out loud. I couldn't talk to my parents about it. I couldn't talk to my friends. I couldn't talk to people I trusted because I was the worst. The sin is isolating. Addiction is isolating. And you feel you're all alone. And nobody's like you, and nobody's as bad as you. And I lived in this cycle. This became the pattern of my teenage years. And addicts always want the easy way out because we're selfish. I don't want to say this out loud. I just want to be fixed. And the way that I thought I would get fixed was by having a girlfriend. And then I would have sex with that girlfriend. And I would have another girlfriend. I'd have sex with her. And then I'd meet a girl who wasn't my girlfriend. I'd have sex with her. And I lived in that cycle trying to fix myself. Help me. Plug this hole in my heart. Fix me. Change me. And I would again and again and again, always trying to find that easy way out. And I was broken the whole time jacked up. And then at 17 years old, a light broke through and I experienced the gospel and I felt Christ reaching out to me in grace. And in faith, I reached back out to him and I was saved. Now this is going to be fixed. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to to not share these things. And so I just kind of kept them inside because I'm saved now. It's going to be different. Obviously, I'll stop doing this. So when I started doing it, even after I became a Christian, because it was my lifestyle, it was my pattern of dealing with life, I didn't know what to do. And then I started going, maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe I need to be baptized again. Maybe I need to work this out. Let me me be better. Let me be good. Let me me read more. Let me pray more. This is going to fix me, right? And it wouldn't fix me. And my pattern continued. So then I was like, well, I'm going to go into ministry. Surely that'll fix me because I'm going to be a minister. And I'll learn more. And I'll go to Christian college. And that'll fix me. And I languished in this pattern, in this broken, dysfunctional cycle. Because I wouldn't get real with myself, I wouldn't get real with God, and I wouldn't get real with my key relationships. And I'm still trying to find a fix. Marriage, that's going to fix me, right? Let me get married. Because then I can have biblical sex, right? It can be biblical all the time. Biblical, yes. This will do it right. And very quickly into my marriage, it began again, and I was heartbroken. 
Then I went into full-time ministry, still doing this. Why is this still happening? God, you've got to take this away. God, can't you fix this? Never once getting real with myself, breaking denial, never once getting real with God or with others. And all I did in marriage is bring my wife into a dysfunctional dance. And there were times that she would catch on or times she would suspect things and I would tell her just enough to get her off the trail. And I, and I did what addicts do. We wipe, we wipe the trail clean, right? We go, nobody's going to catch on me. We duck, we hide, we bob, we weave. That's what we do. And I kept this dance with her for 10 years of marriage. She would ask me outright, so, no, no, I'm okay. And we'd see other people fall to the same, the same addiction. Oh, that's not me, that's not me. I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. I'm in ministry, obviously, I'm okay, right? wasn't. The only reason that our secrets of who we really are aren't found out is because God is patient. And after 10 years of this dance with my wife, after 30 plus years of living this way, God's patience ran out. Every Monday, my wife would come to our church where we were serving at to pick our kid up from preschool. And she came at two every Monday. So as a good addict, that meant I could do what I wanted to do until 159. On November 30th, 2009, my wife came at 150 and caught me in the midst of this addiction that had plagued me for my entire adult life. And because my wife is a brave woman, she said, that's it. I can't do this anymore. Don't come home. I don't want to see you. I don't want to deal with you. You've got to stop and you won't. She kicked me out of the house. And I wandered around going, what, do I, what am I going to do? What, what's next? And, 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 and I, I checked into a hotel and kind of laid low for a couple of days and didn't know what I was going to do. And I was a wreck. And then it hit me one day that there was somebody that I went to seminary with who said that he had spent most of his adult life, 18 years, addicted to pornography. And, and I just reached out. I hadn't talked to him in, in, in about eight years. And I just reached out to him. And he spoke love and truth and honesty into my life. And the very first thing he said to me is he said, God's grace is still good for you. It's still there for you. You are still loved by God. You are still a child of God. But now, you got to do some work. And so not only did I reach out for help, I got help. And I began to start working on my addiction. I began to go into recovery, and I began to to seek counseling. I began to seek uh, discipleship and pastoral leadership. And And then there was this point just a few weeks after my wife had kicked me out that she let me back in, and I disclosed everything to her. Here's who I am. This is what I've done. And when I was done, she didn't trust me and I didn't trust myself. But we took a deep breath and said, well, at least it's out there and we've got to figure out what's next. And then the walls continued to come down because my church, who had to know, fired me. They let me go right before Christmas into a stinky job market. An unemployed pastor who has zero marketable skills, by the way. When you're a pastor, you serve no purpose outside of being a pastor. Nobody wants to hire you. I have a master's degree in theology. Surely the bank will hire me, right? Nobody wanted me. And for four months, I was unemployed. For four months. And in those four months, my wife and I walked in a fog. We were hurting. We were crying. We were depressed. We were humiliated. Our town knew. Our church knew. Our friends knew. People who didn't go to our church knew. Joel had been fired. His family is in dire straits. They tell you to live day by day. My wife and I literally lived hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute, trying to make it through. And I don't remember what day it was, and I don't remember that anything really significant was going on, 
But I had been turned down by another job. I had been denied another interview. And I was severely depressed and hurt and sad. And my wife was. And we were just kind of clicking through life, get kids out for school, pack lunches, clean the house. We were just kind of doing that. And I sat down and was ready to give up. And I knew she was ready to give up. And she had all the right to leave me and be done with me because I had abused her for so long. I had abused our relationship and our marriage for so long. And I looked at her and she looked at me and we said, what do we do? And we decided that day, we're going to hang on to each other. And we're going to trust and hang on to God. And we said that day, we don't know what to do. So let's just fight. Let's fight for our home and for our marriage and for our family. Let's fight for our faith and let's fight for our God. We didn't know what was going to happen next. We just said, let's fight. We didn't know how we were going to pay the bills as I continued on unemployment. And we just said, let's fight. And when I finally got a job making $10 an hour at a mall, we said, let's fight. And when our, when our income was cut by 75% because I couldn't get hired by anybody, we said, let's fight. And when we couldn't pay the bills anymore and we had to move in, With her family for 18 months, we said, let's fight. We chose to fight. And somewhere in the midst of this laughter returned. And we processed and trust started to be renewed. And I started to do my work and my recovery. And she started to do her work and her recovery. And we held on to God. And more importantly, we held on to each other. We began to move forward. Our fight isn't over. We still fight today, fighting for our home and our marriage and our family. And I'll never forget a few months after I had lost my job and everything had come falling down and crashing down around us, I had a friend of mine, a a friend in ministry, who actually is the man who referred me to the church that fired me. He called me and he's like, I wish I knew what to say. I wish I knew what to do. He's like, "I I, I can't even imagine what you're doing. You've lost everything. At this point, Becky and I decided to fight. And I said, well, I said, I've lost a lot. And I hurt, and I'm sad, and I'm humiliated, and I don't know if I'll ever be in ministry again. I don't know if our family will ever recover financially. I don't know what. I go, but I do know this. Tonight when I go home, Becky's going to let me in the house. She's going to let me sleep in my bed, and I get to hug my kids, and I get to pray with my kids, and I get to worship God because she hasn't given up on me, and he hasn't given up on me, and I'm not going to give up on them. We've decided to fight. We don't know what's next, but we've decided to fight. When your back is to the wall and all the eyes are on you, what you do next is what defines us. It's what makes us. And Nehemiah and the people, their back is to the wall and their families are questioning them and their enemies are questioning them. They're even questioning themselves. What do we do next? Let's look at what he does. In verse 14 of chapter 4, he he responds. I'm sorry, let's go to 13. It says, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and the open places, I stationed people by their clans, with their swords, with their spears, and with their bows. Verse 14 is my favorite in the whole book. It says this, And I looked and arose, and I said to the nobles, and I said to the officials, and I said to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, and fight for your sons, and fight for your daughters, and fight for your wives, and fight for your homes. Their back was to the wall, and the fight was on, and he said, Let's take it to them. Let's fight together here. And look what happens in verse, in verse 15. It says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we returned to the wall, each to his work. 
And from that day on, half of the servants worked on construction and half held spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole wall. The whole nation says, we're going to fight. We're going to work together. And in verse 17, it says, who were building on the wall, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Their fight now to rebuild the wall and for their safety was with a hammer in one hand, a saw in one hand, and a sword in the other. When we go to work for our families, when we go to work to rebuild our lives, it's with a tool in one hand and a sword in the other. This is how we fight. We say together, let's do this. Let's gather together as a family, as a family of faith. Let's fight for one another. Let's stand with one another. This is how we do it. With a sword in one hand and another hand ready to do the work of rebuilding our homes, no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how close the enemies are. And Nehemiah says to the people, this is what we're going to do. When the enemy comes and they start to circle around, we're going to blow a trumpet. And when you hear that trumpet, go to that trumpet. Go to that trumpet and that's where you'll fight. We'll fight for one another. And look at what he says as he gives this plan in verse 20. He gives this plan to him. And at the very end of verse 20, it says, our God will fight for us. Six words that define Nehemiah, that defined this nation, that defined these people, that defines our God. Six words, our God will fight for us. Nehemiah is not being a leader here. He's being a child of God and the Holy Spirit put something on his heart and said, say to the people, our God will fight for us. These aren't words, this is a promise. Our God will fight for us. Friends today, as you hurt, as you're struggling through your life, God fights for you. He fights for your family. He fights for your home. Our God will fight for us. The hero of Nehemiah is not Nehemiah. It's not the builders. It's not the leaders. It's not the people. The hero of Nehemiah is God. The hero of my life is not me or my wife. The hero of my life is God. He fought for our family and he'll fight for yours. God fights for our family. This is the pattern that he's always done. In the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had sinned and destroyed this perfection, God came into the garden looking for him, for for Adam and Eve, because he fights for the family. When Sarah was barren in her womb, God answered her prayer and gave her a son so the people could flourish because he fights for the family. When they were wandering in the wilderness of the desert in Exodus and they were crying out and mothers were carrying their children, God was there because he fights for the family. When the families were scattered by the exile and their city was destroyed and they never knew if the walls were going to come back, God was fighting for the families. You know why we know this? Because it says it here. It's very easy when life gets hard to go, oh, where is God in all of this? I look at Scripture and go, where isn't he? He's all through this story. God is here fighting for his people. It may not be the way we think it should be or come in the time that we think it should come or be as perfect as we want it to be, but God shows up because he fights for us, for our homes, for our lives. He is our hero. He shows this perfectly when Mary shows up pregnant, and Joseph has every reason to leave her, just like my wife had every reason to leave me, and he could have walked away. God in flesh, in the womb of Mary, moved Joseph in such a way that he stayed with that family. Even in the womb, God, Jesus, was fighting for the family. He is our hero. He is the hero for our family. So here's our big idea. We must, we must join God in the fight for our families. We must join God in this fight because he is there and he's calling us to it to fight for our homes, to fight for our children, to fight for our spouses. And for many of us today that are barely hanging on, God wants you to fight and give one more day. Reach out to counseling. 
Reach out in prayer. Hang on together. Stand in the gap for your children. Dads, break that hold, that draw of lust and pornography. Leave that other woman. Fight for your lives and fight for your homes. Those of you that don't have a family yet, start to pray for your spouse and pray for your children. You don't know who they are, but I guarantee you, God, who fights for the family, does. He knows everything about them, and he longs to answer your prayer for them. Start to get debt-free. All of us. Start to get debt-free so we can serve our families and we can serve others. We can help others when their lives come crashing down. Start to go to small group and get into Bible study and have somebody mentor you and speak into your life so you can speak into your own family and disciple your family and lead your family. It's time to fight with that hammer in one hand and the sword in the other for our homes and for our lives. Fight for your homes. Pray with me. God, thank you that you are a warrior who fights for us. Thank you that there are many people here restored today because you fought for their homes, for their lives. We praise you for that. And may they be a testimony to the faithfulness of a God who never gives up on us. For those of us today that are hurting, that are struggling, that can't break a cycle of addiction or pain or abuse, Give us the courage to hang on one more day. No matter where we are in this room, God, all of us are fighting a battle that has got us to the wall and the eyes are on us. We thank you that the most important eyes that are on us are yours and you're looking to us because you stand with us, next to us. You fight for us. God, give us the courage, the boldness, the faith to pray and act and to join you in the fight for our lives. Thank you for calling us to that battle. And thank you for going before us in battle. Thank you for being a warrior who fights for our homes. In Jesus' name, amen.